Well, you and I have been working all the way through uh, 2 Corinthians. We're in week 5. We also find ourselves in chapter 5. And one of the things that we've shared as we went through 1 Corinthians and now 2 Corinthians is that Paul had started this church. He'd come to this town in Greece called Corinth. Now it was very different than what you would find in Jerusalem, Israel, which was very monotheistic. Uh, in, In Greece and in Corinth it was very pagan. So Paul starts this church and there's a group of Jewish people that he starts with, but the church becomes mostly filled with ex-pagans coming out of uh, a number of different kinds of worship. So Paul spends about a year and a half there, he establishes the church, he hands the church over to another pastor and Paul continues on on his missionary journey. Over the years, and several years have passed as Paul has left and continued on, several years have passed and other teachers have come into the church. And those teachers are now teaching very strange things. And one of the things that they're teaching is that Paul must not have been very much of an apostle. One of their teachings was simply, if you're in the center of God's will, then God's just going to bless, 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 and everything's going to go just fine. And they would say, now look at Paul. He claims to be in the center of God's will. Everywhere he goes, he gets beat up. Everywhere he goes, he gets thrown in prison. How can you hold that this man is a man of God if everywhere he goes, he has all of this difficulty? Surely if he was a man of God, everything would be working out just fine. So they begin to discredit him and, and his ministry. That breaks Paul's heart, but his heart is also broken because the church at large is embracing some of these strange teachings that Paul never taught, and they're, they're doing things that Paul would never do. So Paul writes back and he's defending this church against these strange things that are coming into the church. And so if you've been following in our study over the last couple of weeks, it was in chapter 2 that Paul said, and I put it there in your outline, in chapter 2 Paul says, we are not like many, and uh, we stopped and we looked at that word which means mostly or largely the, the majority, we're not like many peddling the word of God. And that was in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And that word peddling we looked at means uh, to be a retailer. And I put that there on your outline. And a retailer, what a retailer does is a retailer looks at their market and they say, what do you think those people would buy? And so we're going to figure out what they would buy and we're going to sell them what they would want to buy. And Paul says, we didn't do that. We didn't come to you looking at, what do you guys want to talk about? What what do you want to buy? We're going to come and tell you the truth is what Paul says. And then we went through chapter 3, and I want you to go into chapter 3 and go to the very, very last verse of chapter 3. And in chapter 3 he says, but we, and he he describes what ministry is, and he says, but we with all unveiled face, verse 18, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed, and we talked about that word, into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord the Spirit. And we talked about how ministry is all about being transformed, taking people and transforming them into the image of Jesus, into the image of Christ. Ministry is to help people become more like Christ. It's not to help us be better Americans, it's not uh, to help us become richer, uh, and, and all of these things which are wonderful things, but ministry is to help us to become more like Christ. Then he went into chapter 4, and last week we went through chapter 4, and Paul laid out his views on what authentic ministry would look like. And he would say, here's what they're doing, here's what we do, here's what we're doing, and and the idea is this is what they're not doing. So in verse 8 of chapter 4, very quickly, he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. And he goes on to talk about that. 
Now as Paul shares that, the reason that he's sharing that as far as how ministry is supposed to be, apparently the false teachers were coming in and they were talking about, it's, it's all about prosperity. And for us it's been perpetual prosperity. And Paul says, you know, that really hasn't been our experience. We've been persecuted, we've been beat up, and we've been through some very, very difficult times. Now before we go any further, let me just say that prosperity is not a bad thing. I like prosperity. I would rather be prosperous than to not. I always say this. <laughs> I would rather have prosperity than to not. Can I get an amen? amen? Amen, yes. We all want that. But sometimes that doesn't work out. And sometimes that, that doesn't always mean that, that's, that we're out of God's will. Well, then we come to the end of chapter 4. And in verse 17, as Paul continues on, he says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Whatever I'm going through now, and apparently is very difficult, is preparing me for eternity. So now we come to chapter 5. There's no chapter breaks, no verse breaks. Paul just continues the thought. And Paul says in verse 1, he says, for we know, and I've underlined we know, that if the earthly tent, and I've underlined the word tent, which is our house, is torn down, if you have the old King James, it'll say dissolved, we have, and I've underlined we have, a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Eternal in the heavens. Now it's interesting to me that Paul by trade was a tent maker. So he pulls an illustration from his own profession being a tent maker. In the midst of his earthly difficulties and these light momentary afflictions, verse 5 he says, we know, we know. What do we know? That if the earthly tent, which is our house, currently is torn down, we have a building from God. Now I've put just for fun there on your outline the, the definition for the word tent. And there on your outline the word tent means is skinos, it just means a hut or temporary residence. And then you have building, which is a very different word. And it can mean architecture, structure, or building. And some of your Bibles will say structure and some of your Bibles will say building. So the idea that Paul begins with, although we're going through these difficult times right now, we believe, and, and he just says the earthly body is temporary, but the heavenly is eternal. Go ahead and write that down. The heavenly is eternal. It's eternal. We, we underline it's from God and uh, it's not made with human hands. Remember Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you? And uh, we'll talk about that. This, this body that we get is not made with human hands. And then I also find it interesting, and we underlined it, he says, we know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have. We have. And the idea is that it's there and it's waiting for us. It's prepared. It's prepared for us. Well, verse 2 he says, so when I think about that eternal body, he says, for indeed in this house, that's our bodies now, we groan. And then he says, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And, And I would suggest, go ahead and write this down, that we groan because we see the limitations of the current body and the capabilities of the eternal body. The limitations of the current body and uh, the capabilities of our eternal body. I can tell you when it says in, in our current bodies we groan. Now if you aren't 40 years old yet, this is going to make no sense to you. If you're 50, you're going you're to get this. But there used to be a time in my life when I had to do something for my body to hurt. Now all I got to do is wake up. And I'm, and I'm there. So I understand that groaning. And Paul says, we long to be there. We long to be there. 
Now, in that body, when you consider the capabilities, we're going to have a body that was very much like what we saw with Jesus after he was resurrected. He could appear in a room. He could disappear. He's no, not bound by time, space. So th- there's a lot of capabilities that, that, that we will have in, in that body that we don't have here. Now, let me also go on uh, one step further with this. If you're like me, I grew up in a, in a wonderful church, but we were a King James-only church. And so we read everything from the King James. And so our understanding of eternity came from what we read in the King James Bible. One of the things that we would point to is here on your outline in John 14 too, Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions. Everybody see that? And so we would talk about how one day, you know, we were going to go to heaven and we were going to have this big house and I was more righteous than somebody else. So I was going to have a bigger house than them. And some people we just knew they were going to have a shack, you know, at the end of, at the end of heaven somewhere, that sort of thing. And, and so we, we thought that, we were taught that. Well, when you look at that word, that was translated into English 500 years ago. So that word which says, in my, house, in my father's house are many mansions, the word mansion 500 years ago, or in the original language, that, that word is monet, and it just means a staying, abiding, dwelling, or abode. It has nothing to do with a, a bigger house. And if you look up the word in English, like Merriam-Webster's, it will say the current definition means a very, very large house. But then it will give you the archaic uh, definition, which comes from about 500 years ago, which just meant dwelling or abode. What's happened over the past 500 years is that the, the term has stayed the same, but the definition has changed. In the original translation, it just meant an abode, and over 500 years it came to mean a very, very large house. So where Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions, he's, he's probably not talking about a house, but talking about that eternal body that we, we get. The reason for that, when you, when you think of it, um, you, your eternal body is not going to require sleep. So you really don't need a bedroom. And you can be anywhere that you want to be when you want to be there. So you're not going to need a garage. And uh, as far as cooking, you're probably not going to have to cook, although there is food in heaven. The Bible talks about that, but, but I don't know that you need a kitchen for that. And if you don't need a kitchen, you probably don't need a bathroom. So you're really not going to need a house that's stationary. Does that make sense? Now, I, I questioned whether I should have shared this with you because I know uh, for some of you, due to the housing market, you've taken a real hit and you were really looking forward to, to getting a better house, if not in this life, in the next life. And so, but uh, you know, who knows, maybe, but that's just, just a, an, an idea there. Verse 3, he goes on, he says, Inasmuch as we, having put it on, that's that new body, will not be found naked. So we're in our current body now. We go there, we're put on the new body. And here's what he's saying, and and, and sometimes we miss this, but he's saying we will not be disembodied spirits. So it's not like we have this body, we separate from this body, and then we're naked spiritually walking around as a disembodied spirit until one day we get the new body. We're, We're not found naked. We have this body, and instantly we have that body when we go there. Verse four, he says, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, he's going to keep saying that, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. So this, this temporary tent that we live in, and the word tent is very temporary, it says we groan, there's difficulty. 
We don't want to become disembodied spirits, but we're looking forward to putting on that new body. And when we do that, we know that the mortal part of us is swallowed up. It's, it's done away with. Verse 5, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God. Some of your Bibles will say it just slightly different, but he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. And I'll talk about that in uh, in a moment. God made us for this very purpose. He made us, some of your Bibles say made us for this very purpose. Some of your Bibles say prepared us for this very purpose. Uh, The the very purpose that God has created us, and go ahead and, and, and write this down, is that God wanted us to be part of his forever family. So so God realizes we're in this temporary tent and when we go there we get the eternal the eternal building he would say which is permanent and and he says now in the meantime what's taken place is that God has given us his spirit as a pledge the word pledge means down payment now here this is um the spirit as a pledge when you become a believer God's spirit enters into you when God's Spirit enters into you, all of a sudden your affections begin to change. All of a sudden there's a hunger for the things of God, there's a desire for the Word of God, and there's a love for the people of God. That's how you know that the Spirit of God has come to be in you. So when you meet somebody who professes that they are a Christian, but you can tell there's no hunger for the things of God, the Word of God, or the people of God, I, I question whether the Spirit was given as a pledge to them. But for those of us who have experienced that, we know that God did something very, very specific. And Paul is saying, as much as we know that we were changed here, we can trust that that's going to happen for us when we get there. Verse 6, therefore, now most of your Bibles begin with therefore, based upon everything I've just said, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body, and I've underlined all of this, to, and to be at home with the Lord. We prefer to be at home with the Lord. So our confidence, Paul would say, this is current light and momentary afflictions. Paul would say this, and write this down, our confidence in the midst of our present difficulty is that there is an eternal body and eternity waiting which he prepared. So Paul says, so whatever it is that I'm facing in my life, I'm confident of that. For Paul, his hope was in heaven, his hope was not for here. And we're going to talk about that in a few moments. Verse 7, in the middle of that little paragraph where he talks about we're, in the, we're absent from the body, uh, we're absent from the Lord right now, we hope to be, or we would prefer to be. He says we walk by faith and not by sight. That is a great verse. That verse in this context is talking about right now I'm in this present body and uh, I know that in the future I will be home with the Lord and right now I'm walking by faith that that's going to take place, but when I get there I won't be walking by faith, I'll be walking by sight. So that's what that means in its context, but it's a great verse that we can apply in in a number of different places. Verse 8, there on your outline, I put it from the old King James, and the reason that I put it there, it's probably the way that we're most familiar with it. He says, yes, well pleased, rather to be, and I've underlined absent from the body 
and to be present with the Lord. Absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So the first thing that we notice for the believer is that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Does that make sense so far? So here's what this means. For you and I as Bible-believing Christians, what this means is that there is no intermediate, there is no intermediate state. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we would see teachings like purgatory or soul sleep as non-biblical teachings. And uh, we love our Catholic friends and, and the friends that hold to that, but we would not agree on that. As, as we see it, to be absent from the body for the believer is to be present with the Lord. For those of you who've been around the Bible for some time, you remember that great story in the book of Acts where Stephen becomes one of the, the I guess, the first martyr and he's being stoned to death. And, and for those of you who've read the story, you'll see that as he's kind of fading, taking the hits, he looks up and he says, I see the Son of Man sitting, standing, sitting at the, or standing at the right hand of God the Father. And the idea was that he was not leaving there to go to an intermediate state. Jesus was coming to greet him right there. He was translating from this existence to that existence. Make sense? So, so we would not hold to that. Now apparently, and this is where it gets a, a, a little dicey, apparently uh, for Paul, when Paul talks about this, he says, our hope is there, it's not here. God does cool things here, but our hope is there. Apparently for the false teachers who were coming into the church, they were saying things like, you can have it all and you can have it all now. And I don't want to take a shot at anybody, and so don't go too far with what I'm going to say, but, but it appears that the false teachers who were peddling the Word of God wanted to talk about the things that the people wanted to talk about. So they focused in on topics, probably exclusively things like, uh, how do you build better relationships? I mean, everybody wants better relationships. How do you have better finances? And so they wanted to talk about that. How do you have better bodies? After all, the, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So they would talk about that. Uh, they would talk about better communication. We all want to communicate better. And we all want to talk about goal setting and achieving. Now let me just say, I think those are wonderful, wonderful things and we talk about those things. The, the challenge is that for the false teachers, their message was all about enhancing the here and now, not preparing people for eternity. Does that make sense? And, and, and so be, be sensitive to that. So it wasn't about making people like Jesus, transforming them into his image. Uh, and, and, and so apparently this is what the Corinthians wanted to talk about. So apparently these, these false teachers didn't want to talk about things like persecution or difficulty. Uh, they, they wanted to focus in on the things that enhance this, this life. And, and those, those are good things, but, but sadly Paul says, uh, I'm not opposed to those things, but, but our hope is not here, it's, it's there. Verses 9 and 10 he says, therefore, lots of therefores in this chapter, Paul's continuously concluding, therefore we also have as our ambition whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear. Most of your Bibles use the word appear. So go ahead and underline that. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Whether good or bad. So um, the last line of verse 8, he says, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition 
whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. One of the things that we're going to find about Paul, and you want to write this down, is that for Paul, heaven was a destination, but it's also a motivation. Paul is going to put his energy not into the enhancing of the here and now, but for what's going to take place in eternity. Now verse 9, he says, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So this tells us something for the believer who's received the Spirit as a down payment. It tells us that the very normal reaction of a believer would be this, to please the Lord. Write that down. The ambition of the believer is to please the Lord. So we, we have to ask ourselves a question which can be very, very revealing. If we were to look at our lives and our prayer life, would we say that as Christians who've received the Holy Spirit as a down payment, that our ambition is to please the Lord, or is our ambition to have the Lord please us? Are we going before the Lord saying, who do you want me to be? How do you want me? How can I serve Or do we go before the Lord saying, this is what I want, come alongside, help me. And what we will find is that sometimes even for us as believers, if we're not careful, we can live our lives even as Christians hoping that the Lord has come to please us as opposed to us pleasing the Lord. Does that make sense? Now verse 10, he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So I want you to write this down. We live to be pleasing because there is a final exam. There is a final exam. And we're all going to appear as our translations say. So I I, want to talk about this for just a moment. This exam uh, takes place as soon as you exit the body. This is not at the end of the tribulation, the end of the millennium or nothing like that. This is when you go from this existence into eternity all of a sudden that exam takes place. And most of our Bibles say we must all appear, which, which is true, but it might be a little bit misleading. There in your outline, the word appear in the original language means to render apparent, to render apparent. It doesn't mean necessarily to show up, it just means to be revealed. Uh, we, so you could say we must all be revealed. Uh, commentaries are quick to point out, like Wearsby's commentary would say, appears means be revealed. And that's certainly true. And I'm going to suggest that this is more of a revealing than it is an appearing. So if you were to take a literal translation of this verse, it would say it like this there in your outline. He would say, for, it, for all of us it behooveth. Isn't that a great word? Behooveth. To be manifested. Underline that word manifested. That word manifested just means revealed before the tribunal of Christ. So it's more of a showing up than it is an appearing. This is 2 Corinthians, but Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians. And so Paul gave more explanation in 1 Corinthians. So I want to take just a moment to unpack it. First of all, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talked about this because this is for believers. Paul is writing to believers here. So he's not talking about unbelievers. This is all believers. And Paul explained, and you want to write this down, that this exam is for rewards. It's for rewards. Write that down. And he talked about this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he says this, with your pen in hand. He says, each man's work 
will become evident. It'll be revealed. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed. By the way, it's the, essentially the same word that, that uh, we just looked at, revealed, with fire. For the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Underline that. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work, underline man's work, is burned up, and you might want to underline that word burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Now th- this is, um, our, our Catholic friends take this passage and, and they, they come about with the teaching that's called purgatory, where you, Jesus saves you, but then you have to be purified, and so you're purified by going through the fire for a certain amount of, amount of time. And there's a couple of things that I w- just want to highlight in this little passage. First of all, I had you underline several places, and we note that the works are burned up, but not the person. The works are burned up, not the person. And uh, apparently Paul, Paul uh, anticipates that some would take this the wrong way, and so he, he highlights it's the man's works, the man's works, but not the man. And when it says burned up, it doesn't mean to be purified. Uh, that word burned up there, you see the Greek word, I won't try to pronounce it, but it means to burn down to the ground to consume wholly. And uh, so it's not that you're purified, that wouldn't be the, the case. And also, it doesn't say that the man would suffer, he suffers, but it says that he will suffer loss. And I want you to write that down. So if uh, we, we live out in Jupiter Farms, we live in a wood frame home, and if we were to go home today and the house was burned down, we, I would suffer loss. You know, there's memories, there's pictures, there's things, but, but I wouldn't be burned down is the idea. So you suffer loss, it's, it's just, you don't have that anymore. So the idea here is that on that day, the, what you and I face as believers, everything we've done, all the, the, the stuff we've done goes into, and he uses the illustration of a fire, and whatever is useless, wood, you know, straw, chaff, however you'd say it, that's all burned up, and what's left is the gold, the silver, and that's the reward, whatever is, is left. And so that's the idea of this, it's for rewards. Now, what is the criterion for rewards? Well, there in your outline, if you go back to verse 9, he says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So the criterion for the rewards is what I do to please the Lord. Go ahead and write that down. What I do to please the Lord is is what's going to be my reward. Whatever I've done for him, that's going to be the gold, and whatever I've done, all the other stuff I've done, that's just going to be burned up. Salvation in the Bible is always a free gift, but rewards are earned. Salvation is free, rewards are earned. And it's because of that that Jesus challenged you and I as followers of him to do our very best to store up rewards or treasures in heaven. Notice what he says. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So here's what this means. It's okay to do things here because you know you're storing up rewards in heaven. And it's actually the motivation. It's the motivation, part of the motivation. So whatever I do to please the Lord becomes that that reward. Verse 11, he continues on, he says, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, 
we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. I love, uh, once there's another therefore, it says, knowing the fear of the Lord. I like the old King James, it says the terror of the Lord. How many of your Bibles say the terror of the Lord? A couple of us. Okay, good. Now, when he says we know the terror of the Lord, he's not saying, he says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He's not saying that if I don't persuade men, I will face the terror of the Lord. That's not what he's saying. Uh, You and I as believers, we never face the terror of the Lord. Here's what he's saying, and I want you to write this down. The message is, I have been delivered from the terror of the Lord, and you can be delivered too. You and I as believers, we understand when Jesus talks about judgment for those who reject him. And so we understand that terror, and because we understand that, our desire is, is to do what we can to bring as many people into God's kingdom. And then verse 12, he says, and we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer. Now underline this, for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. So here's what he's saying. And write this down. There's no reward for trying to look spiritual. And if you've ever been in a religious environment where you're, it's constantly held to try to look more spiritual than the next person, there's no reward for that. And Paul says they take pride in the external, the appearance, but not in the heart. And so the idea is Paul saying, I'm not going to do things to make you think I'm spiritual on the outside, but I'm going to make sure that my heart is right for the Lord, right before the Lord. That makes sense? And hopefully that's very freeing to you, that it's not about looking spiritual. And we live in a day and age where uh, in ministry, it's all about the marketing and they can put the person out as, as this, this um, celebrity, but you find in some of those cases, and we've certainly seen, that sometimes there's not a lot of substance underneath. And uh, we'll probably see more of that as we go. Verse 13, he says, for we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Very quickly on that verse, Paul is responding to the false teachers. They're saying, Paul, you've lost your mind. Paul says, no, I was out of my mind when I was persecuting the church. Now I'm in my right mind serving the Lord. They're saying, no, you've lost your mind since, since you began serving the Lord. Verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Now underline, therefore all died. Now in verse 14, here's what I I want you to write down. We died to an old life of living for ourselves. Verse 15, we'll explain that. Verse 15, here's what we died to. And he died for all, so that they who live, underline, might no longer live for themselves. Does everybody see that? You want to underline that, but for him, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So as believers, the normal response when we become believers is that we live for Jesus. Write that down apparently there were some coming into the church and in their teaching they were saying that he came to make you rich, he came to make you blessed, he came to work it all out 
as though Jesus came to enhance our lives. Paul would say, no, that's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to die in your place to save your soul from all eternity, from being separated from God. All those other things are great, but that's why he came to save you. Now, the, the response then would be for you and I, if he did that, the response would be, since you've saved me from all of that, I now want to spend the rest of my life living for you. So, a couple of things that we need to talk about in just a couple of moments. How do I know who I'm living for? There's one question, one question. It's simply this, who is setting my priorities? Write that down. If my prayers are, God, this is what I want to do, and I, I want you to help me do this, and these are my dreams and my goals, and uh, I need you to come alongside of me to do that, then here, here's what we're doing. We are setting the priorities of our life. On the other hand, if we are going before the Lord and we're saying, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to serve? What do you want to do through me? When we pray that way, we're allowing God to set the priorities. Does that make sense? Okay, now we we need to take a little test here. A little test. So if you would, um, I want you to travel with me very quickly through this chapter. So get your Bibles back out. Do I look done? (laughs) All right. Paul is confronting what the false teachers of the day were teaching. And as he do this, there's a few things in this chapter that you and I, as professing believers, need to evaluate to see where we are. In verse 8, verse 8, he says, For we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the... Lord, two things. First of all, is your real passion to be there? Or is your real passion to be here? And you're only going there because you don't want to go to that other place. Paul says, no, for the believer, our real passion is there. When you think of going to heaven, he says there, the very last line, very last line, to be at home with the Lord. When you think of going to heaven, do you think I'll finally be reunited with Aunt Matilda, brother so-and-so, my friends that I've lost, or do you think in terms I will finally be at home with the Lord? See, for Paul, it was about seeing Jesus, not seeing all the relatives who had passed on. That's great too. But the first priority is my desire is to see Jesus. In verse 11, He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, knowing the fear of the Lord, again, it's not we persuade men because we're afraid of the the Lord. The idea is that we know the reality as Christians of what happens when somebody rejects Jesus. And so because we know that reality, we're involved in the persuading of people to come to the Lord because we recognize the reality of that. Now we realize all we can do is present, he has to open their eyes. But would you describe yourself as participating in the persuading of men because you understand the reality, the fear of the Lord? 
In verse 9, he says, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Is your deepest passion to be pleasing to the Lord? Or would you be honest to say, my deepest passion is for him to be pleasing to me? The normal Christian's desire when the Spirit comes in is to be pleasing to the Lord. Verse 15, we just read it, he says, He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him. Would I say, very honestly, that in my life that he is setting my priorities because I'm going to him and saying, Lord, what do you want to do with this life? How do you want me to live this out? How do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to serve? What capacity? What do you want me to do in your kingdom? Or would you be honest by saying, no, I, I, I'm more on the side that says, here's what I want to do. Lord, would you come alongside of me to help me accomplish what I want to accomplish? Paul is confronting the false teachings that people are embracing. And I can tell you that it's as the pastor of this church that I, as I look at this, realize I'm not completely where I need to be and I'm willing to bet that if I'm not where I need to be in this, we're probably, most of us at least, not where we need to be. Let's don't be like the people that Paul had to correct. Let's be the people that God's really called us to be. We're out of time. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the change that you bring in our life. Lord, we look at this and it's very convicting because if we were to be honest, we bought into a lot of what the false teachers have been teaching and we've embraced. And for much of our lives, even as Christians, it's about you coming alongside of us and helping us accomplish what we want. Lord, we reject that today. We repent of that. We turn back to you. We say, Lord, we live for you. Our life is in your hand. Accomplish your purpose. You lead us, we'll follow. Keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.